Uh, good morning or good afternoon, good evening, whenever you happen to be watching this. My name is Pastor Matthew Mano. I am the next-gen pastor here at New Life. Uh, basically what that means is I get the opportunity, the privilege of leading all of our next-gen ministries, overseeing all of our next-gen ministries, along with a lot of the people who are sitting in this room. The truth of the matter is that we wouldn't have made it through the last year without if I may just speak to the people in the room and those of you who didn't make it today online, we wouldn't have made it here without each and every single one of you. Like, without your efforts, without your faithfulness, without your willingness to show up every week in the most difficult year we've ever seen, we would not be here today. The good work that we're talking about, the good things that we've seen would be impossible without your efforts, without your commitment, and without your dedication. So thank you. Uh, thank you from our families. Thank you from our pastoral team. Um, yeah, we could give it up. Let's give it up, guys. Come on. You can, you can put up some clapping emojis online if you're watching online. Um, I am so thrilled that we take this Sunday, one Sunday every year, just to talk about the next generation. It's fantastic, and I'm not just saying that. I know I'm probably a little biased in saying, oh, yeah, this is my, one of my favorite Sundays of the year. It probably should be, um, but I'm glad that we're all here. I'm glad that we can have you in the room. I'm glad that you're watching with us on Facebook, YouTube, the New Life website, however you happen to be watching. I'm excited that it's Next Gen Sunday, and if you're excited that it's Next Gen Sunday, just do me a favor and drop that in the comments. I'm excited for Next Gen Sunday. Just put it in there. And when I go watch later to see if you did it, I hope I see a whole bunch of comments. So make sure that you are participating. You will get a participation trophy. Um, but to say that this year has been tough is probably a little bit of an understatement. Uh, for all of us, in so many different ways, this year has been really difficult. And I would even say that thinking over the course of this last week, even getting to today, it felt like a microcosm of what the entire rest of the year was like. At every turn, at every corner, every plan that we had, it seemed like there was something standing in the way. There were unforeseen circumstances. There were people who just needed to cancel. We had to change what this entire day was, and yet here we are. Here we are, full of hope. Not hope in ourselves, not hope in our plan, but hope in God and hope for the next generation, because that's what today is all about. We're here filled with hope, not just for this Sunday, we're here today with hope for the future of the church and for the future of the next generation. And for me personally, this idea of caring for and leading and shepherding the next generation, it's become even more personal than it ever was before. In October, my wife Natalie and I welcomed our son, Isaiah, into the world. Uh, he has brought so much joy into our lives. He has brought so much less sleep into our lives. Uh, it's just one of those things where you run the full gamut of emotions, of feelings. But I'm going to show you a picture, but before I do, I need to preface it by saying this. I believe that every baby is cute. I believe that every baby is adorable. Every baby is beautiful. Um, I think, and I, know, I, I don't think, I know that when you were a baby, you were beautiful and you were cute and all that kind of stuff. But you ain't got nothing on my son. <laughs> there has never been a baby more adorable than you're about to see. And so just, just, if you think I'm kidding, here, just have a look right here. Like he's just, I mean, look at that. He's even got his little Mets hat on. He knows what it is. He's, he knows what it is. Um, but like I said, he has brought so much joy into our home and into our lives. And I am thrilled that the world is starting to open up so that he can see people. I always say all the time, 
he probably thinks at this point that no one has a mouth because everyone he's seen has had a mask on every time he sees them. So he's going to be shocked when he realizes that people have lips under those things. Um, but one of the many things that caught me off guard in becoming a parent was definitely how quickly hope grabs hold of you. Like instantly, from the moment we found out that, that we were pregnant, um, like, all, like I was just filled with all this hope of what his life was going to be. But the thing is, I couldn't name any of those things until I got some news that troubled me a little bit. We were at a, a very early sonogram appointment, and the doctor did his whole little scan thing, and he mentioned that, that Isaiah's legs looked like they would be short, like a little even maybe abnormally short. And all of a sudden, I found myself filled with all this fear and worry about what his life would not be because of those things. Like all of a sudden, I have, I, I'm, I'm being flooded and met with every single hope that I had for his life that was just sitting beneath the surface that I had no clue was even there. Now, I mean, I don't know if you can tell from this picture. He was born small. He was born about five. He was like struggling to get to five pounds. And today he looks like he ate the kid we brought home from the hospital. Now, but I want to be clear. See, because that, that, that situation, that moment taught me something that's really important and something that we have to keep in mind today as well. See, just because he grew to a size that, that maybe is less worrisome, it doesn't mean that my hopes for him to be some kind of world-class athlete are going to be fulfilled. I recognize that I needed to elevate my hope to something a little bit better than that, that I needed to put hope in God to grab hold of his life that I needed to make sure that Natalie and I are living in such a way that he has every opportunity to fall in love with Jesus. And that, my friends, is my greatest hope for the next generation. That as a community, as a church, we are living in such a way so as to set up the next generation to see what it looks like to live for and fall in love with Jesus. That is the greatest hope for the next generation. And if you agree with that, somebody shout amen. Type it in the comments. That's because that's the truth we are working from today. And we're going to get to our text in a moment. It's going to come, uh, we're going we're gonna to go Old Testament today. So a little Old Testament, but before I get there, it's going to come from Nehemiah 4, 10 to 14, but let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you have a heart for the next generation, that you have a heart for every generation. I thank you that we have your word to guide us in the way that we should move forward to reach the next generation so that they can live the best, fullest possible life for and with you. Lead us today, convict us today, open our eyes to see the ways that we, that we can engage our young people. It's in Jesus' name I pray and everybody says, amen. As I mentioned, our text today comes from Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 10 to 14. I, you can read along with me. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired, and there's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families, armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. 
At this point in scripture, the people of God have been living in exile for the better part of the last 60 years. And the events recorded in the book of Nehemiah tell the story of the beginning of their return to Jerusalem from being exiled, being taken into captivity in Babylon. Nehemiah, as the cupbearer, he brings the king his wine every day. He walks into the king of Persia's uh, chambers, and he has his cup, and he's looking sad. And the king of Persia asks him a simple question, why the frown? Why are you so sad? What's going on? Nehemiah makes his appeal. He tells the king the condition of the walls of his home city of Jerusalem, and he wants to return so that he can rebuild them. The king agrees, and he sends him on his way with everything he needs in order to rebuild the city walls. There were people living around Jerusalem, and they were, un they were unhappy to hear that the walls were going to be rebuilt. And so they started this campaign against them, and it was really insidious because it started off with just simple mockery. They figured we can badger them like away from doing this work. We can irritate them, annoy them, discourage them from doing it with mere words. And so they mocked them. They start off just mocking them. The Bible tells us that when the people started the work, it started off with great enthusiasm. They worked enthusiastically. They got the wall to half of its height because they had a belief. And this belief shaped exactly why they were doing the work. They believed that in order for their people to flourish, in order for them to secure their future, in order for them to return to living the way that God called them to live, they needed to restore their city to its former glory. This was about securing their future. This was about making sure that they were protected. And like I said, they got the, the wall to a point where it's half of its height, and this set the enemy off. Their enemy came with their clearest, most violent threat yet, and this is where we pick up in our passage today. Verse 10 says, the people began to complain, which if you read the Old Testament, a common theme throughout the Old Testament is the people of God complaining. So this is not really anything new. The workers are getting tired, and there's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying before they know what's happening, we're going we're gonna to swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. The Jews who live near them came and told them again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. Now, there's a theme all through, this, through the book of Nehemiah as they're trying to do this work, um, and the theme is opposition. Somebody say opposition. There's, there, are, there is constant and steady, ever-present opposition to everything they are trying to do. It comes from different people in different ways, standing against the work, in this case, that's being done to rebuild the walls and their way of life. First, they face opposition from the people doing the work itself. They've been, believe me, like, I went on a missions trip to Mexico several years ago, and we had to build a wall around an orphanage, and it, that is hard work. And the wall was only like this tall, that's like three feet. They built a wall 40 feet high. Imagine lifting stones 40 feet up into the air. They've gotten halfway through the work at this point, and they're looking at this project, and they're saying, we have just as much work ahead of us as we do behind us, and it looks like we've got nothing done at all. They were exhausted. And when you combine that exhaustion with just the sheer amount of work that was left to be done, you have the perfect situation for complaining. And let me tell you, there is nothing there is nothing that kills enthusiasm the way that complaining does. If you've ever had a complaining child on a day out with you, you know what the complaining can do. 
I know that I like to complain <laughs> probably far too much. In fact, whenever we do trips with the student ministry, and I, doing trips sounds like a different world that doesn't exist anymore, um, but whenever we do trips, one of the, like, rule number two is no complaining. You're just not allowed to do it. Um, because, like I said, complaining is the enemy of enthusiasm. If you want to have a good time go bad quickly, just let complaining go unchecked, and you can watch everything that you're doing unravel right before your eyes. And see, if people want to complain, it has to come with a request for change. You can't just complain. Like, give me a solution to what you see is wrong here. Um, and the people are working on these walls, and their complaints are just flying. Every, they're just complaining. There's too much work to do. There's too much rubble to move. Like, I'm tired. My enthusiasm, my excitement about this is gone. Nehemiah is starting to lose his workforce as the magnitude of this project starts to weigh on them. And that's just the first layer of opposition in this story. Then you have the opposition from their, from their enemies, which you would expect. Like, you would expect your enemy to be against you, wouldn't you? They're trying to rebuild these walls, and th the thing is, the people living around Jerusalem didn't want to see a strong Jerusalem. And they knew if they rebuilt the walls, they could operate from a place of strength. And so again, they started mocking them, and eventually it turned into outright, just blatant threats of violence. We are coming, and we are going to kill you. You talk about a hostile work environment. Like, it doesn't get worse than that. And finally, the last, the last layer that I see here of opposition comes from the Jews that live near the enemy. And I actually find this group of people really, really interesting. See, they keep coming by over and over. The Bible says that they came again and again, almost as if they're coming to check on the progress the people are making. But while they're there, they're also constantly reminding them of what the enemy is saying they're going to do to them. It's like this steady stream of bad news. They were like TMZ. They came with the tea every day, like, let's spill the tea. The tea is that they're coming to kill you, just so you know. There's no encouragement, which I would think these are like, you're my people. How are you my people? And you're coming here, and you have all this bad news for me. Why don't you, why don't you cheer me on? Why don't you clap for me? Why don't, why don't you offer to pick up one of these stones and pass it up the wall? No, instead, you come by, and all you're reminding me of is all of the bad news that exists around us. You're reminding me over and over again of what's going to happen if we continue to do this work. See, you expect your enemies to be against you, but to have your own people contributing to the anxiety of the moment by stoking fear is incredibly disheartening. See, the, building the wall was a project based in hope. It was based in hope. There was an entire generation of people born in exile. They had no idea what, what Jerusalem was like before they were taken into captivity. They had no idea what the temple was like when it was filled with the presence of God. They had never seen these things, and they believed that if they rebuilt the city, they could get back to that way of life, that they could get back to that way of worship. This was about reestablishing what they had before and living according to the law and tradition, and yet this work is met with great opposition. And that's a good word to keep in mind as we think about the next generation. To say that there's work to be done to reach them is a bit of an understatement. It's much more like a mission. 
The younger generations that are kind of filling our world today are unique. They're extremely unique, and they're, I think they're incredibly special. They are the most connected generation ever. They are the most racially diverse. They're the most well-educated, and they're the most technologically advanced generations ever. And they even have names. There's Gen Z, and then there's Gen Alpha, and now they are coming up with all these new phrases that we're gonna talk about in just a minute. They live in a world where the internet has always existed. Information, knowledge, all of that has always been available to them at the click of a button or the swipe of a screen. They can literally find out anything they want to know about the world in an instant. There's no more going to the library to read something in a book. It's, I'm going to type my question into Google, and I'm going to find out everything I need to know. Our world moves really fast, but their world moves at a pace that I can't even begin to think of a word that's faster than fast to describe how quickly their world moves. And in a lot of ways, this generation, they were ready to have everything move from in-person to online. Like, they were ready, at least from the standpoint of being able to engage in a virtual, everything, socially distant world. But that's not the whole story. They're also a generation that is marked by extremely high levels of anxiety and depression. And a lot of it has to do with their, with their fears of missing out on things or not being able to keep up with the way the world around them is constantly always changing. I think technology has a lot of pluses. There are so many great things about the technology that is in, in every single one of our pockets right now or that you're watching this on right now. But the way that we engage it, the way that we use it, is a major contributing factor. Like, you talk about an obstacle to reaching the next generation. There was a study put out by Barna that looked at the annual screen time spent consuming entertainment among 15 to 23-year-olds. And they found that in one year, the average 15 to 23-year-old, uh, when it comes to entertainment alone, consumed 2,800 hours 2,800 hours in a year of just entertainment on their devices. Now, my, that is almost a third of a year in terms of hours. A third of a year. By contrast, a spiritually engaged, church-going 15 to 23-year-old consumed 291 hours in a year of spiritual content on those same devices. And that tells me a few things. One, entertainment is just much more readily available um, and in greater supply. Like, think about all the places you can go to watch your favorite TV show. It used to be you had to wait for it to come on the television, and now it's like, I got On Demand, I got DVR, I got Netflix, I got, and the list goes on and on and on of all the subscriptions you have to pay for. The other thing that it tells me, though, is that it reminds me is that screens disciple. And we would do well to remember that screens disciple. And in fact, as a way of helping us remember, why don't we all say it? Screens, disciple, you go. At home, type it in the chat. Screens, disciple. They do. They disciple. See, I don't think that screens themselves are the enemy. It would be ridiculous for me to think that as many of you sit at home in front of a screen watching this service. Screens in and of themselves are not bad. Instead, there are two things I think that make them problematic. I'm sure there's more, but I'm going to talk about two. One is a lack of realization that screens are discipling really all of us. They are discipling all of us, but especially our young people. 
the power of these digital tools and the content that they, it's incredible when you think about what these things are capable of doing. But now, instead of going to older people and instead of relying on tradition, many young people just turn to their friends or an algorithm to find out anything about the world. If they want to know something about life, ask Google. Check out the latest trend on TikTok or Instagram for answers. The second thing is, there's just a general lack of boundaries around the way we use these tools. As a new parent, like I, I work from home, my wife, like she goes into work, she's a teacher, she's in a classroom with a bunch of kids, that means I'm home with my son all day. And the temptation is so strong to put him down in front of the TV all day and allow him to be hypnotized into silence in the name of me getting work done. Believe, and believe me when I tell you this, that is blissful silence. <laughs> Parents at home, I mean, I hope, like, I feel you. Believe me, I didn't used to, but now I, now I do. I feel you. But maybe it's not, maybe you're not putting your kid down in front of the TV. Maybe it's, maybe you're sitting around the dinner table as a family, but you're miles apart. You're miles apart because you're sunk into your plate and your device. See, even social distancing, which we've all had to adapt to, like, the reality is many of us were distancing ourselves from each other long before the pandemic made it required. We build up walls of inattention to the people who are right in front of us. Meanwhile, the next generation has these deep spiritual longings, which ought to be lovingly tended and skillfully cultivated. They're being choked to death by binge television, immersive gaming, and social media scrolling. But it's hard to set these things up. It's difficult to put good boundaries, good healthy boundaries in place. And like I said, technology and all the things we can do, they're not bad in and of themselves, but if we're not intentional, if we're not mindful, they can keep us from pursuing the deeper things of life. And all of this was true before a pandemic shut down the world. Social scientists are coming up with new generational labels for the youngest kids who are being born in the last two or three years. They're calling them Generation C for COVID, generation, the COVID generation. As these young people grow up in times that we consistently call unprecedented, there are several studies that have suggested that the next generation is gonna to struggle to find jobs. When they do find jobs, they're gonna make less money. They're gonna have a, an incredibly difficult time in social situations, in social settings, and that they will probably never recover from the COVID pandemic. When you combine all of that with the, simple, with, with the fact that this has been an incredible year of loss for them. Yes, they've lost fam some have lost family members to the virus. Some have lost friends. All of them have lost time in school, time in social situations, and time celebrating huge milestones in their lives. Imagine being a high school graduate and not getting the opportunity to go to graduation or go to prom. How painful must that be? Imagine being a child in a classroom. One day, you're with all of your friends. All of a sudden, school is closed for over a year, and you never get an opportunity to see those friends or a teacher that you probably loved again. And chances are they're not equipped to adequately deal with all of that loss. 
Now, all of this seems really bleak, and the truth is, it is. Like, that's all really bad news. I'm kind of like those people that we just talked about a minute ago who were constantly coming again and again telling you about how, how bad things are. But that's not where the story ends. This is not all bad news because we serve a God who, can, who has already said, he's told us, I have overcome the world so you don't, like you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about because Jesus has overcome the world and all of its trouble and all of its problems. But there's something that we need, something we need to move towards if we're going to overcome any of this. Nehemiah 4, 12 to 14 says this, so I, excuse me, 13 and 14 says this, so I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families, by families, armed with swords and spears and bows, and I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy Remember the Lord, who is, who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah, in response to the threats from their enemies, to the outside voices discouraging them, he did something to help raise the sense of urgency about what they were doing. He put the most important thing in their lives right in front of them so they could see what was at stake. You'll work a lot harder if you know that your family is at stake, won't you? I know I will. I will work a lot harder when I know my family is at stake. And the shift that we need to make is to understand and to realize that the next generation, if we're all part of the new family of Jesus, it means that they are your family. It means that they are, they are your sons and your daughters. They're your nieces and your nephews. They're your cousins and every other familial line that we can draw. They are all of those things and so they matter. And so we need to get on the front lines, all of us together, to fight for the next generation because that's what the new family of Jesus is about. And I love that Nehemiah, he cases all of this in this last, this last line, to remember the Lord. See, the people make this statement like, we can't do this by ourselves, and they were absolutely 100% correct. This work that I'm talking about right now, we are incapable of doing it by ourselves, which is why it's so important that we remember the Lord. We must remember the Lord and remember the things that he's done. You see, it's in this plan, it's in what Nehemiah does, putting families together, putting them out there to fight for one another, that we find the greatest hope to reach the next generation. This is, it's not about cool and fun gatherings. It's not about a select few people pouring into the lives of our kids and teenagers. Both of those things are needed. Both of those things are important. The greatest hope for the next generation is found in the entire community coming together to fight for them. Everyone has a part to play. And Jesus, has a, Jesus tells us exactly what that part, exactly how we can do that part. And Pastor Rich actually references last week in his sermon, uh, it's John 13, 34 and 35 says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. See, the next generation is watching to see if we're living what we're preaching. People say all the time, I don't know who started this, but they say it all the time, that young people are able to smell phony really far away. If they get a sense that we're not about what we're talking about, like we're not living what we're talking about, they don't want anything to do with it. 
They are tired of performative religion. They want to know what obedient faith looks like. They want to know what obedient faith looks like to see if it's worth even pursuing in the first place. The next generation, these, these kids today, they care so much about the things happening in our world. They care about the way that people in our world are treated. They care about justice. In fact, some say that justice is actually the language of the next generation. And to quote a, an author that I follow, his name is Gerald Fadayomi, he says this, to speak their language, it must be expressed through action. It must be lived. It must be modeled. The best way to model that we belong to Jesus is to follow, is to listen to what he said. Love each other. They will know you belong to me by the way you love one another. That's the church the next generation wants to be part of. And I love and I believe wholeheartedly that that is the kind of church that we want to be here at New Life. The kind of church that walks in a way of loving one another, of lifting one another up in love. Mark Matlock in his book, Faith for Exile, says, we believe this generation wants and needs more. And we believe the abundant way of Jesus, the family of God called the church, and the ancient call of Christian mission can answer the stifled longings of this anxious age. To be in Christ is to be part of the new family of Jesus. It means that when we fight for these young people, we're fighting for our family. It means that the next generation gets to fight for us, for me as well. It means they get to fight for you as well. It means that they get to participate in the life of the church today as equals. Like, I love that we had that video of the kids reading the prayer of generosity, and yeah, like, that's cute, but it's, that's also church. Like, they are, they, that's church. So how can we all get involved? I'm going to give you just a couple of really quick ways. First thing is, Nehemiah does this all throughout the entire book of Nehemiah. He prays. Before he does anything, he prays. Jesus models this for us in the Gospels. He prays, and he prays a lot. He does incredible things, but he does all of them from a place of prayer. Maybe that means you make it a point to be intentional about taking time every day to pray for the next generation. That means, that means praying for the kids you come across when you're on your way to the store, the kids who are in your life, maybe your nieces, your nephews, your neighbor's kids, whoever they happen to be. Pray over teachers who are teaching in the most difficult school year we've ever seen. Pray over the kids who come to church, whether online or one day, sometime soon, in person again. You can pray over small group leaders as they look to build meaning relationships with kids and teenagers. Another way to get involved Serve parents. Parents are, parents need support. Parents need, like this, especially now, parents have become everything. They have, they were, they were parenting before, but now they're parenting, they're the teacher, they're the school cafeteria worker, they're the school nurse. Like the list goes on and on of all the roles that parents are filling in their kids' lives, and it ha it's exhausting and it's overwhelming. We need to support parents. You want to know how? Ask a parent, hey, what do you need? What can I do for you? How can I support you? How can I come alongside you? One really great way, send food. <laughs> I'm serious. One of the greatest blessings that I've experienced in, in, in becoming a new parent is people randomly, like, sending food to my house. It's fantastic, and I have a saying that I live by. If it's free, it's for me. And so if you send, food, send parents meals, send them meals for their whole family. When the world returns to normal, ask them if you can babysit their kids so they can get a break and go have a night out. But the most important thing that we can do to reach the next generation 
We need to live out our faith. We can't give away an authentic faith if we don't have an authentic faith ourselves. You cannot give away what you do not have. And it's something that, the, a great way to do that is simply to follow the words of Jesus and love each other. Love each other in the way that he did. Get into the scriptures and understand what it looks like to live your life for Christ. Because the next generation is waiting to see if we're living what we're preaching. At the end of the book of Nehemiah, he does, he's praying yet again, and he's, he's actually admitting that the wall was a failure. Because the thing he hoped would happen of the people returning to, their, like, to this way of worship and, and living for God didn't actually happen. And so he's praying to God, and he's, he's running down the list of all the things he's done, and he says at the end, God, remember me, I tried. Friends, I want to contrast that with Jesus, who when he was on the cross, he said three words. He said, it's fin- it is finished. He said, the work is done. The victory is mine. And he proved it when he walked out of the grave three days later. The work is done. We just need to get on board with what Jesus has already accomplished. To reach the next generation, we need to fight for them. And the best way to do that is to walk in Jesus' victory. Not trusting in our efforts, not striving in our own strength, but trusting in his finished work on the cross. The greatest hope for the next generation is found when all of us join the fight for our families, for our homes, and show them what Jesus is like. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have a heart for the next generation. That you're not, you're not looking to, to, to do anything but see their hearts changed for you. God, I pray that we can be a, a faithful community of people who work together to fight for them. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for Pastor Matt who led us today and show him some love on the chat section there. Every year we take a Sunday to uh, focus our ministry and focus on Sunday on this next generation. And as Pastor Matt mentioned, yes, there are some significant obstacles that our world is in. And yet we are not going to give up on our commitment to connect with to empower, to reach uh, this next generation because we have great hope that Christ wants to use them in powerful ways uh, in the years to come. For those of you standing in the room, let's all stand together. Um, At the end of the service, there'll be a a sermon discussion time and uh, one of our pastors will be leading that time. Feel free to jump in for about 30 minutes as we would love to Uh, have some good conversation as to what it means for us as individuals and as a community to continue uh, to reach this next generation and empower this next generation as well. Uh, I have great hope, and I just want to, again, thank those who are in the room. Uh, Many folks who are in the room today have served over the past year and even years before that to serve this next generation, whether in elementary ministry, middle school ministry, high school ministry. And so I just want to thank you all for the great work that you have continued to do over the course of this past year. And we believe that God is not done, that God is going to do some great things in the months and in the years to come. 
We have the sermon discussion, as I mentioned, at the end of the service, so please feel free to, uh, to join us there. Before I bless you, I wanted to let you know that next week we are uh, officially uh, reopening. Uh, and um, I mentioned this last week, but just a couple of things before I, I bless you. We have uh, 25% capacity that we'll be letting in as we did before. That means there's a, there'll be about 100 people in the room. We'll have one service. And based on the level of um, response from our congregation, we will slowly begin to uh, unfold an additional service in the month or months to come, depending on our congregation. I know a bunch of people have already asked me, what about two services or three services? We're going to go pretty slow with that there. Social distancing will be maintained, masks will be required, all that stuff there. But you'll need to register uh, ahead of time. And, and folks are going to be invited to register. So pay attention to your email uh, this week because those are the ways that you're going to uh, be able to register to worship with us uh, starting next Sunday. And feel free uh, for more details. There's an FAQ section on our website. You can check that out uh, to get uh, all the questions that you might be thinking of. Lastly, before I bless you, some of you are watching today and every Sunday I don't uh, assume that, or I, I, I try not to assume that people are not waiting to say yes to Jesus Christ. I imagine some of you are watching today, maybe you clicked this link by accident, and you're like, what is this all about? And I want to let you know that God loves you with an everlasting love, that he wants to pour out that love on you in ways that you've never known before. And if you are sensing today that God is calling you into a relationship with him, a very simple thing you can do is just text the phrase yes to Jesus to that number you see on your screen. And we would love to help you on your journey. Maybe if you're not ready to make a decision like that, but you have a lot of questions about the spiritual life, we'd love to serve you along those lines as well. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. We close every gathering like this because this is a sign of receiving out of which we give to the world. And so with your hands in your hearts, in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building and out of this online experience in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that God has called you to be faithfully present to this next generation. And may this generation be anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit to bring glory to the name of Jesus. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you all in this room. Those of you watching online, see some of you next week. Blessings.